fact, why don't we turn back in our Bibles once again to the book of 1 John as we continue our study through 1 John together here on Sunday mornings, 1 John chapter 2. And this morning we're going to pick up where we left off, which has us in verse 12. And we're just going to look at three verses this morning, verse 12, 13, and 14 in 1 John chapter 2. And as we do, would you stand with me out of respect for God's word as I read this morning's scripture? 1 John 2, verse 12 says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. And Father, we just humbly ask this morning as we continue now in this time of worship, as we have sang and prayed and fellowshiped and done other things as an act of worship, that Lord, this time as well would be the continuance of our worship as we just open our heart and our soul and mind for you by your spirit to speak to us through what you've spoken. So Lord, give us an ear to hear and a heart to receive. And we ask that we might each hear what it is that you need to say to us this morning through the word of God. Bless this time, we ask expectantly in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, fundamentals are those foundational or we might say core things of central importance that all else is either based upon or built off of. So, for example, if you're playing a sport, we all know if you did anything in athletics that fundamentals were a very important part to that particular sport. Or if you're performing, let's say, a particular type of trade work, fundamentals are very important in particular types of trade work. Knowing the fundamentals is essential. Well, in the same way, there are also some fundamentals that are key to having healthy relationships. And so that being said, there are certain things that as Christians who have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, there are certain things as Christians that we should know, some fundamentals. There are some certain things, honestly, that we must know in order to walk in a meaningful relationship with God, to have a healthy experience with his son, Jesus Christ. And that is what our verses seem to be focusing upon this morning, some fundamentals spiritually. We might say some blessed assurances to being a child of God. Now, these verses here in chapter 2, verse 12 to 14, uh, these certain verses here kind of are uniquely placed. They almost seem to form like a parenthetical section here in the midst of the chapter in John's writing to kind of briefly encourage the soul amidst a lot of spiritual instruction, doctrinal things in the book of first John. There's some strong warnings in John's letter, some exhortations, and perhaps this parenthetical section was directed by the Holy Spirit to just give some wonderful assurances to encourage the child of God, how blessed they are. And so that we could be assured of some key fundamental things 
to help us in our relationship with the Lord. Now, one of the many analogies, and there are different analogies in the word of God to picture or describe the spiritual life. One of the many analogies is this experience of a spiritual birth becoming God's child, and then progressively growing or maturing as we go onward after we're born again or experience our spiritual birth. And this is the illustration that we see being utilized in our verses here. Eventually, even as the natural life has progressive stages of development, so there is the birth of a child, and then there's the progressive development and growth through stages of maturity, in human life, well, in the same way that happens in spiritual life. And it appears likely that's why John is using this kind of an analogy here in verses 12, 13, and 14. You notice as he talks about little children, young men, and then fathers. Uh, And he says these things somewhat, you notice here, kind of repetitiously. He mentions both categories Uh, or all three categories, two different times with things attached to them. And it seems the repetition, as always in Scripture, is for emphasis, to emphasize some important spiritual truths. So in light of that, I want to kind of take these three verses, as I believe they're put here somewhat parenthetically, as sort of an overall unit of thought that's being conveyed by the Holy Spirit and expound upon them accordingly, looking at each of these, we might say, three stages of spiritual development, childhood, kind of being then a, a young uh, you know, man, young woman, and then parenthood spiritually, fathers or mothers, for example. However, in order to do such, uh, to ex- kind of go through these, uh, we can't particularly as we normally do go exactly in sequential order, verse 12, talk about verse 12, verse 13, talk about verse 13. Uh, Instead, I think it's helpful to kind of focus in on each stage that's referenced in the different verses and the things that we see attached to them. We'll still expound upon everything that's here, but want to look at the descriptive language and follow the flow of what I believe the Holy Spirit's given to us of this idea of being little children spiritually, then being young men or young women spiritually, then being a father or a mother, if you would, progressing in the spiritual life. So the first term we see used to describe, we might say the initial stage of spiritual life and development is that of being small children. You notice with me again, back in our text, look at verse 12. He says there, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. And then again, in the middle or toward the end, excuse me, of verse 13, he's going to reference again, little children who've now known the Father. So we each begin spiritual life starting out, we might say, as little children spiritually who then grow. The term that's used here, little children, is actually a term that speaks of little born ones, or we might say recently born ones. And that's very fitting because that's very descriptive, again, of this analogy. God's word teaches that the spiritual life or spiritual experience begins by being born spiritually, that we have a birth spiritually at some point. Look, the Bible conveys very clearly, despite what culture wants to tell us, maybe what your church upbringing was, or even what your own perceptions may be, the Bible teaches that God is not the father of all people from birth. 
In fact, the Bible speaks there are actually two spiritual fathers, God and the devil. The Bible tells us that every person has been created by God initially. That is, God is the creator of all. He grants conception. God gives life. He knits us together in our mother's womb. God is the creator of all. But something must transpire for us to go from having God as our creator to actually having God as our father and actually being a child of God spiritually. Or let me emphasize further, biblically, according to what God's word says. God's word teaches to us that God gives us all physical life, but we don't start out our physical life with spiritual life or a relationship with God. The reason is that due to sin entering into this world and infecting all of humanity from the Garden of Eden with Adam, our first parental figure, the Bible tells us, Romans 5 declares clearly that everyone born since Adam has inherited Adam's condition, physical life, but no spiritual life. That we are all born sinful by nature, that we are all born spiritually dead. That is, we have physical life, but we do not have the existence of spiritual life when we first start out our human existence. That is something that must come at some point when we experience a spiritual birth, or as the Bible talks about, being born Again, that is a second birth, a second birth that takes place because sin separates us from God relationally. And that is why God sent Jesus. God sent Jesus for that very purpose and that very reason to provide forgiveness and resolution to our sinfulness and to help reconcile us back into relationship with God as our creator. And when we receive Jesus' accomplished work in his death and resurrection and ask Jesus to save our soul, it's at that point then as a result, the Bible says we experience a spiritual conversion and we experience this spiritual birth as the spirit of God enters inside of us and causes our dead spirit to come alive unto God and we are awakened and then have an experience with God. Jesus himself, who was God in the flesh, was the one who spoke directly about this. Jesus in John chapter 3, many of us know John 3.16, but a lot of people fail to realize what happened before John 3.16. And that is Jesus was talking to an extremely religious man, someone who was very religious, attended the religious gatherings, knew facts about the scriptures, prayed some prayers, and yet this man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus because he realized something was still missing inside of him. And when he came to Jesus, Jesus said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time back into his mother's womb and be born and Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. It's physical. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The idea is born a second time. You must have a secondary birth in the same way, the only way you get into this world and experience all that there is to this physical world 
is through the one narrow means, it's Mother's Day, right, of coming through the breaking of water and through the birth canal and out into this world, and that being born of the flesh allows you to experience the physical fleshly realm. You don't get dropped off by a stork, right? We all know that. Every mother would testify this morning. It wasn't no stork that helped. It, it, was the, it was the birth process. And there was a physical birth that gives physical existence and physical life. And Jesus said, why do you marvel? In the same way to experience the spiritual realm, that which is spiritual. You have to have a spiritual birth at some point. There needs to be a spiritual beginning, a birth, a start to the spiritual life. And that's why Jesus said you must be born again. Again, it's not natural. It's not automatically there. There's a birth, a conversion of being born by God experience that has to happen. In John chapter 1, John himself spoke about how that very spiritual birth happens that Jesus said was necessary. He said, to any who believe in Jesus and receive him. He gives the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with physical birth, but a birth that comes from God. See, that's what's necessary. You don't gradually become a Christian. You don't gradually become a child of God. In the same way, as I've said before, you can go stand in a garage all day long. You'll never turn into a car. You can even go zoom, zoom. You can even put gasoline in yourself. Nothing's going to happen. You, you, you don't gradually become a car by standing in garage. You don't gradually become a Christian by being in the church, hanging out with Christians, or acting like a... You must have a spiritual birth. This is what Jesus emphasized. That is how we become a child of God. A supernatural experience happens when you receive Jesus Christ, believing in faith in what he did. When you receive him as Savior and Lord, the Bible tells us that that is when the Spirit enters inside and we come alive spiritually, and after that transpires, we then become born spiritually, born again a second time. And it's at that moment when that has then happened, we then start out life as a baby Christian, as a little child spiritually. We come to know him, and we spend a season, all of us do, spend a season of our spiritual development as little children spiritually. Those early childhood days and seasons or whatever it may be of just being a brand new little child in the faith Christian. And John reminds what blessed assurances characterize those early childhood stages of spiritual life. He mentions the first one of two in verse 12. What characterizes those days of being a small, younger child when you first come into the family of God? He says, verse 12, one of the things that characterize that phase he says, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. So in that initial stage, when you first meet Jesus as Savior, when you first become a child of God, there is a very strong sense of the blessed assurance that your sins are forgiven. And when you first get saved, when I first became a child of God, it's your mind was blown over. And just like a little child that's so enamored by certain things and kids can get so excited and so enamored over certain things, a child of God, when you first become a legitimate child of God, as the scripture describes, you come into that awareness that your sins are forgiven, that all of your guilt that you carried around in your life 
that, that all of the shame and the regret of the things that you did, the baggage that you had in your soul, all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, it's, it's accomplished. It's all removed. I'm a brand new person now. I'm cleansed. I've got a restart, a reset. And you realize that though you deserve punishment and that you were actually headed to hell, to eternal damnation forever. And now you've been spared from that. Because your sins have been forgiven. When we hear about this glorious news that though we deserve punishment for our sins, but yet God in his love sent Jesus to do the rest of what John 3 talked about. Jesus said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would just believe upon him wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus said, and God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And when we come into that understanding as a sinful person, realizing that we are guilty before God and we sense the fear of hell that is looming over our soul and that if we die in our sins, we are gonna perish. But then hear of that great love of what God did in sending Jesus and what he accomplished for us. When we hear, you mean Jesus as God entered into this world and he lived sinless because he knew that I could never live a sinless life to satisfy what it takes to get into heaven. And then Jesus died on the cross and he took all my punishment for every wrong thing I did, for all my guilt. He took all the pain and the beating and the abuse and, and he was the lamb of God sacrificed to take away the sin of the world. And we begin to hear these realities that the blood of Jesus Christ, as John said in chapter one, can cleanse us from all sin. And then when you believe that truth for yourself and you realize for your own soul's condition, your own need, that you're a guilty sinner, but if you just receive Jesus and what he did, that you can be spared. And when you choose and I chose to believe upon that, it is at that moment that our sins became forgiven. We were washed clean. We were purified from all the guilty, wrong failures and the filthiness of things that we have done in our lives. And our shame is taken away and our punishment is revoked. Revelation 1 says that Jesus has loved us and washed us from all of our sins in his blood. And there are many New Testament verses that explain this judicial declaration and reality of God's forgiveness for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, Colossians 2 says it this way. God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven all our transgressions. Notice all our transgressions. Having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us and condemned us. Jesus has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The Bible assures us that we have been forgiven positionally and fully and completely. All of our past sins, everything that you've done that was written on your certificate of debt, Jesus took it and he nailed it to the cross. All of your present struggles, when you still stumble and make mistakes, even as a Christian in sin, that was on your certificate of debt. And Jesus nailed that to the cross. 
even your future sins and mistakes, the things that you will do in your shortcomings in a human body still, when you make mistakes, that was already taken care of because it was on your certificate of debt when Jesus nailed it to the cross and said, it is finished, paid in full, fully completed. That's why John says here, how glorious to know that all of our sins, notice he says, verse 12, are forgiven. He doesn't say might be forgiven. If we keep performing well enough, or if we don't make too many mistakes going forward, or if somehow we can earn or attain. No, he says this is about grace through faith in a finished, completed work once for all are forgiven. They already are forgiven. The past, the present, the future, it's our trust and reliance in that finished work of Jesus that God judicially declared clean, pardoned, forgiven, absolutely free from all punishment and judgment. Hebrews 10 says it this way, for God's will for us was to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stood and ministered before the altar day by day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. And then he sat down at the place of honor at God's right hand. See, the Bible teaches one sacrifice of Jesus for all once for all time. And he sits at the right hand of the father and and sitting is a resting position. Jesus is not pacing around in heaven concerned if somehow one of your failures slipped through the cracks on him he's seated in heaven saying what i did once for all the father is satisfied i have completed the process and look that is why it's so crucial to understand that it is heresy to continue to convey to people that the sacrifice of jesus perpetually happens again and again through the offering of a Eucharist or through this or that, or that Christ is, no, no, no. Jesus did what he did and it was fully efficient, effective, accomplished forever. It's done. Christ doesn't need to keep sacrificing. He doesn't need to keep suffering and shedding his blood. The Bible says he did it once for all. Satisfied. And we just trust in that. And we rely on it. And that's why we don't have to add anything to that. Why we can't add anything to that. We just wholly cling to it and trust it. I love Luke chapter 7 where Jesus speaking to a woman in the community who was publicly known. The Bible says is a great sinner. And Jesus speaking to this woman who had a real public reputation of sin and guilt who was broken. And she comes to Jesus in humility and she falls at his feet. And Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven you. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And I can't imagine what that must have meant to that woman to hear that. To hear Jesus say to you, your sins, forgiven, yours. Your faith has saved you. Rest, I'm at peace, you be at peace. 
fully forgiven. And that is the wonderful assurance, this incredible reality during that phase of being a little child. When we first come to God and are born again of the spirit, we recognize this. And and like a little child that's amazed by some of the wonders of this world, that's what we're amazed by. My sins are forgiven me. The Bible says, oh, how happy is the man whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sin is removed. And it says here it is for his namesake. The idea, it holds true that Jesus has forgiven because he declared it. And his name and reputation is fully reliable. Notice the secondary thing we're told in the end of verse 13 that characterizes the early childhood days of spiritual life. When we first become a new child of God, he says in verse 13, toward the end there, I write to you little children. And then he says, because look what he says, you have known the father. So another blessed assurance on top of discovering and knowing our sins are forgiven that marks the early days of being a new Christian is that awareness of coming to know God, creator God as your heavenly father in this intimate, personal way. Or perhaps maybe if you had no human father or maybe didn't have a very good human father, that you now inherit this perfect, wonderful, kind, benevolent, trustworthy, reliable father relationship with God. That God becomes your father and this perception of that reality that you've been adopted into the family of God. And the Bible even uses that language. And adoption is wonderful, right? Because that's a choice. Physical life, you know, you you conceive a child, that child becomes yours. That's beautiful and wonderful too. But there's something about adoption because adoption is I didn't have to make you my child. I wanted you to be my child. I chose you to be my child. And adoption is what the Bible portrays is this beautiful analogy of us becoming a child of God. Spiritual adoption, you are one of God's kids and you, you find that out. And it's this amazing new reality. Oh my goodness, I can relate to God like a father, I can relate to him like a father figure. He's going to take care of me and he's a good father and he's reliable and he's faithful. Romans 8 says it this way, for as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, or the idea literally is Papa or Daddy. That that is the intimacy that the spirit puts into the heart of a child of God. He goes on to say the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. That is our inward human spirit that we are children of God. It's one of the things that happens that when the Holy Spirit enters inside of you and I at conversion, the Holy Spirit is testifying to your heart continually. You are a child of God now. You're precious to him. He loves you like one of his own dear children. And he wants you to relate to him intimately like a daddy, like a papa. In this intimate way where you would be able to experience that relationship. And again, that's another one of those mind-blowing things. When you first become a child of God, when you become a little child spiritually early on in those early days of spiritual development... There are those two wonderful realities. My sins are forgiven. And God is my father. I have a father in heaven now who can help me with any problem. He never runs out of cash. He never runs out of power. 
And no matter how bad I behave, he knows when to spank me and how to straighten me out. And, and, and all this wonderful reality of what it means to have God, almighty God, as your loving, kind, heavenly father. Now, the secondary stage he mentions of progression and spiritual development as we mature and grow spiritually, as we move from being a little child, he then mentions to becoming like a young man. You notice the middle of verse 13, he mentions this secondary stage. He says, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. And in the end of verse 14, he will mention the young men again. So young men, we might say spiritually, this is a reference of when we start to grow up. We start to learn a little bit of some spiritual realities of the spiritual life. We start experiencing some of what it now means to really walk with Jesus, to take some further steps. We start to get some mileage in our journey of what it means to serve the Lord faithfully in a responsible way, to have a consistent Christian walk. We're not stumbling around as much, to learn to live as a mature Christian. We start embracing some of the realities of what it really means to experience some of the challenges of the spiritual life. Some of the temptations and our faith begins to be tested. Even as we start enduring some spiritual warfare and battling temptation from Satan and sin trying to pull us back into the world. And like any young man who at a certain stage, part of becoming a young man, then becomes old enough, right, to then enlist and then to go into the battle We don't send six-year-olds into battle, but there comes a certain age when you start to become a young man. Okay, you're old enough. You can now enlist. You can now go into the combat zone. You can begin to enter into the battle. At this stage, we start learning how to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. How to start fighting the good fight and, and taking our place and what kind of assurance characterizes This stage of spiritual development, well, he says here in verse 13, when we learn that we have been given spiritual resources, he says here, to overcome the wicked one. To overcome in the battles that exist spiritually. Your spiritual walk starts to demonstrate spiritual victory over Satan and over sin and temptation from attacking and controlling you and I and overcoming the power of, of those things that Satan brings. The wicked one here, of course, is a reference to the devil or to Satan, who the Bible represents as a spiritual adversary to our soul that opposes our spiritual life, who resists us in our spiritual walk as we seek to serve the Lord. And look, just like a little child is kind of naive, right? A little child is typically kind of naive and and they're somewhat sheltered from real life challenges. Now I know this is a different generation and if a five-year-old doesn't have an iPhone, they feel like they've got some real challenges. But typically little children, they're kind of sheltered from life's realities, right? They're not experiencing the stress of bills and and all the kind of adult-like hardships. And just like little children are typically kind of sheltered from a lot of challenges and difficulties and harder things, and life's pretty easy. They don't have as many pressures and responsibilities. And then what happens? Naturally, it should anyway, and gradually, as a child develops and goes through adolescence and teenagers and they start to be young men and young women, little by little, the reality of pressures and responsibilities and starting to grow up develops and they realize all of a sudden, wow, there are some challenges to life too. Oh, there are actually some hard things that are a part of life. 
there are some difficulties. Well, the same is true spiritually. At first, you become a child of God, right? And when you first become a child of God, wow, I'm forgiven, man. God is my father. And you're just enjoying that so wonderfully. And then all of a sudden, one day, you discover it's not always easy being a Christian. There's actually resistance and People may persecute you at your job or your family may mock you or misunderstand you. And all of a sudden you start experiencing attacks spiritually in your comfy, happy little Christian life. All of a sudden starts changing into this playground to a battleground. And you're thinking, where'd the playground go? And God says, that's for the little children. That's all they can handle at that stage. And I want them to have a time to be little children. To enjoy me as their father and enjoy their sins forgiven, they'll get here too eventually. And all of a sudden, right, you start discovering you have an adversary to your soul that wants to hassle and hinder and take you off track. And and he tries to destroy your spiritual walk. And he starts to come against you in different ways. The wicked one who Jesus calls the father of lies, who Jesus says he wants to rob, kill and destroy Everything good in your life, everything godly that would be going on, he's opposed to your walk with the Lord, and especially if you really start trying to live for the Lord. And all the more if you say, I'm actually going to try and serve the Lord and be fruitful for the Lord. First Peter chapter 5, Peter says it this way, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So Peter just says it so honestly. He says, here's kind of what it's like. You're a Christian. You're a lamb. The devil's like a lion. He can't wait to destroy you. Wow. And he says, pay attention because like a, like a hungry, roaring lion, he is just looking for people's lives to devour. He wants to destroy Christian lives. He's angry because he's lost your soul. Your soul's eternally sealed. God's your father. Your sins are forgiven. He's lost control of your soul, but if he can do anything at all to hinder, to stop, to distract, to ruin, to defile your spiritual life. And and the devil's agenda is one thing, save soul, but at least let me waste their life. And so the devil starts to bring opposition in this way and to seek to resist and to hinder us. And the wicked one is always working to come against us. Ephesians 6 says it this way, put on the full armor of God. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, against the rulers of this dark world and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. See, the Bible tells us specifically there is this spiritual resistance that's going on as the wicked one, the devil works against us. And as we mature in the Lord, we start to realize there are some challenges here in this Christian walk. There are some pressures and trials. There are temptations. There's going to be battles to navigate through. There are going to be obstacles and persecution. And we have to continue to endeavor to walk and overcome those things in the battleground. We have to continue to pursue victory in walking in the spirit and overcoming Satan's temptations to sin and his efforts to oppose us. And as we start to mature, we start learning from God's word. He says here, we start learning victory is available, however, to overcome the wicked one. Victory is available through the power of Jesus. He says, you've learned to overcome 
the wicked one. That's what begins to characterize the next step of maturity is, yes, you realize the wicked one is trying to overcome you, but you've learned to overcome him. And this is what Romans 6, 7, and 8 are all about, assuring that we can overcome spiritually Satan and sin, that these things don't have to control us anymore, that we don't have to live as slaves to sin anymore, that we can walk in newness of life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that God gives us the victory, how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory is something we receive from God through the power of his son, Jesus Christ, by the spirit working in our life. And we start to realize that we don't have to be defeated by Satan, that we don't have to be destroyed by the temptations of sin, but that we can actually overcome and triumph over the power of those things. We can have victory through a conquering king. Because our Lord conquered and he can give to us the power to conquer as well. Where does that victory come from? Well, look at the second part of verse 14. He tells us, he says in verse 14, I've written to you young men. And then he adds here, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And then he says again, and you have overcome the wicked one. So here John begins to add on a little bit to how do we overcome the wicked one? He just told us that we can and that we start to learn that we can. And now he says to us, the reason we can start to overcome the wicked one at this next stage of maturity is because because you've now become strong. And the idea there is at this stage, we begin to gain some strength spiritually and we start learning, unlike a little child or a toddler who's, you know, maybe unstable. We start learning how to stand on our own two feet spiritually. And we don't always have to have somebody holding our hand spiritually. Come on, read your Bible. Come on, pray. Come on, let's go to church. Come on, let's stop looking at pornography. Come on, let's stop living with your boyfriend or girlfriend. We don't, at this stage, you start learning how to stand on your own two feet spiritually. And you start learning. Hey, just like a young man. Look, you're not a, you're not a boy anymore. So I expect you to start acting like a young man. And all of a sudden, God starts telling us, look, there's a strength available. You're, you're stronger now. You're not as weak and vulnerable as when you were a brand new, younger Christian. You've developed some strength. You've begun to become stronger in your walk. And the reason is that we discover it's not about our own strength, that there's strength in the Lord. That's why we start gaining strength, because we start discovering what Romans, or excuse me, Ephesians 6 says that we can be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So it's not we get stronger because I'm I'm becoming a stronger Christian now. (laughs) The longer I walk with the Lord, I realize the greater amount of weakness that exists in my life. But you begin to rejoice more. Thank goodness there is the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ as his spirit, as we yield to him, flows in and through our life and empowers us to have strength, to overcome the wicked one, to walk in victory by his strength. We realize it's the power of the Lord supplied to us as we yield to him. That's how I resist Satan. That's how I overcome sin. That's how I keep serving the Lord. The Bible says that his spirit works in our inward person, strengthening us inwardly, giving us this power. We start becoming stronger in the Lord. And another part of what contributes to that overcoming strength, he says here in our verses, verse 14, notice, 
you become strong. And what's part of the way that we become strong? Because now the word of God abides in you. It literally means to remain in, to, to settle in. In other words, we start taking in and digesting a lot of God's word. And because we're digesting a lot of God's word, we start becoming stronger spiritually because the word of God is now written on the fleshly tablet of our heart. And so that starts empowering us from within. The truth of God's word supplies strength and power to us, our inward life. Hebrews 4 says the word of God is living and powerful. Ephesians 6 and Hebrews 4 says that God's word is the sword of the spirit. So, right, so we start understanding how to do battle. I do battle, not in my own strength. I do battle with spiritual weapons. And the greatest weapon I have offensively and defensively both as it swings both ways is the word of God. And as this abides and remains in you and I, as we digest more and more of God's word, we are strengthened by the word of God's presence dwelling within us. Think about it. That is exactly how in Luke chapter four, Jesus, when he was on this earth as a man, overcame the devil's temptations. You read Luke chapter four later on when Satan comes and tests Jesus. Jesus does not overcome the devil in his deity, but in his humanity. And he overcomes the devil in his humanity by simply doing what? Standing upon the truth and the authority of the word of God. He knew the strength and the power of God's word, and he resists direct temptation from Satan and overcomes through the word of God. Why? Because he wanted you and I to know, as he was showing the devil, I don't have to be God to defeat you. I just need to be a man yielded to the power of the spirit and resting and relying upon the word of God and I can overcome your temptations. And so by the word of God, Jesus shows the strength that we have and we begin to really mature when we start becoming stronger and stronger spiritually through our awareness and our use of the word of God, letting it remain in us and be the thing that strengthens our soul to overcome in the spiritual life. Well, the third and final stage he mentions of spiritual development here in our text is that of being fathers, or we might say a parental figure in the development. He mentions in verse 13, the beginning of it, and then the beginning of verse 14, he says, I write to you fathers because you've known him who's from the beginning. And then he again, verse 14, says exactly the same repetitiously. I've written, he only says to you fathers, because you have known him who's from the beginning. Now the fathers here represent spiritually, we might say men or women of God, who've progressed to a greater spiritual maturity, like adult-like figures at this point. Fathers are not only further along in maturity than young men, but think with me about this. What makes a father a father is they have proven their ability to reproduce and to care for someone else other than themselves. That's what characterizes fatherhood. Someone becomes a father when they've proven their ability to reproduce and take care of others. And spiritual fathers and mothers, this parental stage, can reproduce their spiritual life in other people. They can actually help other people's spiritual lives beyond just maintaining their own on the battlefield and staying alive and surviving spiritually. You catch my drift there. 
When you're a young man, just, hey, I'm surviving on the battlefield now. I don't got a rat on my mouth anymore, buddy. I'm fighting the devil out here. Well, the father and the mother figures, the parental figures, let's say they're, they're the sergeants out on the battlefield. They're, they're doing things to help and to protect and to guide and do things to assist and support and offer counsel and guidance. They're investing in others. And like parents, these are saints spiritually who've established adult, mature-like spiritual status, whereby beyond their own walk, they're now able to begin to help and care for other people in their spiritual walks to provide counsel to others and guide others and support others and minister to others and correct others and to mentor others and pour into others. They've reached a mature status where they're spiritually rooted and like a parent, spiritually like a parent, they can offer the same things to other believers around them, to other children of God by discipling through good example and counsel and caring for people. Now, what is the one main thing we're told here that characterizes this stage of spiritual development, this stage of, we might say, maturity. Well, he says twice of the parental figures spiritually in the beginning of verse 13, in the beginning of verse 14, he says, this is what characterizes this stage. He says, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Now, that's the same phrase John used back in chapter 1, to describe Jesus, who was from the beginning and came and was manifested in flesh. So what John is saying here is what characterizes the mark of a mature believer is they really know Jesus. They are someone who's in deep relationship with Jesus. Sure, do they know their sins are forgiven? Absolutely. Do they know God is their father and relate to him that way? Absolutely. Are they strong spiritually? Most certainly. Are they overcoming the wicked one? Absolutely. Is the word of God deeply abiding them? Most certainly. Yet ultimately their greatest joy and their deepest concern is I just want to know Jesus. They just want to know Jesus more and more. And it's amazing, this reality. The reality is they know that is what true maturity is rooting in. And at this stage, you desire to know him more fully and to serve him more faithfully because you begin to recognize as you've got some history behind you, mature saints realize that all things that pertain to spiritual life, every benefit, every blessing, it's all tied to Jesus. It's, it's all tied to him, knowing him. And there's that term again. It's the gnosko, the term in Greek. It's not knowing facts about Jesus. It's experiential relationship with Jesus. It's knowing something by having an experience with it, not just hearing information about it. And so John says here, this is what's going on at this stage. They're having great encounter and regular interaction with Jesus. They, they enjoy worshiping Jesus and walking alone with Jesus, and talking to Jesus, and, and hearing Jesus' voice. Those who progress spiritually, it's interesting, they come full circle, you would, to this marvelous thing from beginning all the way back around, where to get to know the Lord becomes their highest enjoyment. It's a thing that matters more to them than anything else. They realize this is what spiritual life is all about. It's just about knowing him. It's just about knowing him. You know, Paul wrote very late in his Christian life, Philippians chapter three. He'd been a Christian for quite some time, but listen to what Paul says. He says, I want to know him 
That is Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, or the idea is participation in his sufferings. Paul said, all this other stuff, this, that, the ministry, this, that, my past life, whatever. I just, yeah, I was a jerk. I was a wretch. I'm tired of thinking about that. And yeah, I've had a fruitful Christian life. I've been walking with Jesus. It's been wonderful. The Lord's allowed me to serve in this way and do this and that. I don't want to be a rock star. Paul says, I just want to know Jesus more. And Paul says, I want to know him in every way. I want to know the power of his resurrection at work in my life. And I even want to know what it's like to suffer. I want to experience some of the same sufferings that he did because we know that sometimes there's a depth of fellowship with Jesus that happens in the deepest of sufferings that you couldn't even experience on the mountaintop of great power. But if you just want to know Jesus, you say, Lord, I want it all. I want the power and the pain because I just want to know you, Lord. And John begins to say here, this is what the mature believer realizes because they know that's what eternity is going to be all about, right? Eternity is going to be all about understanding, worshiping, and beholding the Lord. And it's as we know him, we become better equipped to do what? Help others come to know him. And so this characterizes that beautiful, beautiful stage. You start reproducing in your relationships that you're connected to, helping people come to know Jesus and helping people get to know Jesus better. And that becomes what life spiritually is all about. It's like a cycle that goes full circle. Little children, strong young men, mature fathers. Little children, strong young women, mature spiritual mothers. And this beautiful cycle continues to happen as the family of God grows. Look, let me say this morning, it's not about where you think you are in the spiritual development process. So don't walk away from the study going, I wonder where I'm at. Let let me simplify that. Just keep growing. Just keep growing. Know these blessed assurances. Your sins are forgiven. Relate to God as your father. Grow in strength in the Lord. Let his word dwell in you. Overcome the wicked one. Get to know Jesus more and more and more. Look, ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you this. I've been walking with the Lord now since 1992. There is no shortcut to spiritual maturity. There's no shortcut to that destination. There is no way to get there quickly. It is a journey and there is no substitute for just daily, every day, week after week, month after month, year after year, just walking with Jesus and getting to know him. There's an old song we used to sing. I remember years ago about this reality of knowing the Lord. It said this, this was the course. It said, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. Let's stand together and let's pray.